All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just, uh, you know, it's gonna haunt me the rest of my life. I want to keep talking to you, but I feel like we have some kind of, uh, connection. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, you'll be fine. Come on. <laughs> what would we do? Um, I don't know. All I know is I have to catch an Austrian Airlines flight tomorrow morning at 9.30, and I don't really have enough money for a hotel, so I was just going to walk around, and it'd be a lot more fun if you came with me. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Richard Linklater's Before Films. It's very romantic. I usually don't like that, but it's uh, really well written. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. You're both stars. Don't forget. <laughs> These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Why are you telling me all this? I don't know. I, I, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. Listener discretion is advised. To our one and only night together and uh, the hours that remain. we're discussing Before Sunrise, starring Ethan Hawke, Julie Delphi, directed by Richard Linkletter. This is Arnie, the now playing co-host who speaks English, but maybe we speak German for a change? Stuart in LA. And I'm the crude, dumb, vulgar American, Jacob. Pinch me, guys. I know that everyone out there listening thinks that this is just some artsy-fartsy stuff that I made Arnie do, but... <laughs> It's true. I love Richard Linklater. I love these movies. I'm spoiling nothing by saying all high recommends for the next four weeks for these movies. So excited to be talking about it. I can't believe we're talking about it. It's not me. It's not my fault. If you wanted to hear us talk about some dark horse comic movie crappy things. So many people were emailing saying, why are you doing this instead of Taken? <laughs> I'm the newbie here. I'm, I'm guessing this is the better choice than Taken. Yeah, I feel like anything would be better Taken than Taken 3. And they're like, it's both three parts. Why couldn't you have done a Liam Neeson trilogy? And the answer is yes, I have been pushing for this for some time. I couldn't believe it when I heard about Before Midnight. And we had a pretty packed summer, but I was trying with Stuart. I'm like, we got to get Before Midnight on the schedule. Anyone who read my 40-year-old critic series I did last year where I reviewed 40 movies in 40 days. I had quite a diverse range of movies there, but one of my picks was indeed Before Midnight, and I did that because I thought we'd never get a chance to review it because we didn't review it when it hit theaters, and we usually try to tie into something current. But I was so excited for this because it's such a weird trilogy of films, and I think there's a lot to discuss there in that it's almost a movie made by the characters themselves at the end. I mean, Julie Delpy, Ethan Hawke, and Richard Linkletter, they really collaborated very much on this, and they've talked about when the first one came out. They're like, we may do another one in 10 years, and I never thought they would, and then they did. And they're like, we may do it every 10 years, and then not even quite 10 years later, they're back again. And I'm just like, I can't believe that you do this with aging characters and reflect different stages of people's relationships. And I'm not the Richard Linkletter fan that Stuart is. I like Dazed and Confused. We'll talk about how I got into these movies. But yeah, I felt 
like this was something a little off the beaten path. And when we were looking at our schedule for 2015, come on, isn't this doldrum of winter when we always do this kind of stuff? This is when we did Scorsese, DiCaprio. This is when we did Philip K. Dick. It's usually a pretty shitty time for movies and theaters. And so we kind of go and do something a little bit off the beaten path for us. Sure. And not only that, but it's Oscar season. And Boyhood is a little movie that could. It's going to be a movie a lot of people are discovering as it's lauded with all these nominations. I figured this is a good place to start. In some ways, this trilogy of before films is kind of the same thing that Boyhood is going to do. It takes little snippets of life, seemingly inconsequential, and builds really an epic out of them. I never thought that this would be a trilogy. Honestly, not only is it a surprise that we're covering a movie like this for now playing, but I just never thought there would be a sequel to Before Sunrise. It was a standalone film. I discovered it in 1995. I saw it as the next film by the guy that made Dazed and Confused and Slacker. I had no idea that he would ever return with these characters again to do any more with them. So it was something that I looked forward to each time I heard about it. It was elation and joy, and I would run to the theater to see the new installment, never thinking there would be another one. But here we are, three films for the next three weeks. Same here. I saw this thinking it was a rom-com. <laughs> Which means you would have liked it. Yes. <laughs> Those who listen know that I have a tendency, especially in the late 80s and all the 90s, to watch rom-coms. And Richard Linklater, I've seen Slacker. It was honestly so long ago, I barely remember it. Dazed and Confused, I really loved, though. And I saw this coming out, and I don't know if you guys remember the trailer, but it had that song by the Lemonheads, Into Your Arms. Evan Dando, yes. Yeah, and I figured if it's from the guy who did Dazed and Confused, it's probably some kind of rom-com. Ethan Hawke. I was an Ethan Hawke fan, if you can believe it. We had Reality Bites. I think I kind of saw this as a follow-up to Reality Bites for him and that same kind of vibe. They wanted you to think that, yes. That is exactly how they <laughs> marketed this movie. Is the American going to get laid in his last night in Europe? Yeah, so I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on video. It's not what I expected. But yeah, this was one of those kind of indie treasures. Every so often, there'd be a movie that I'd see and really enjoy. In the 90s, I've talked about how that's when I discovered indie filmmakers, thanks to Tarantino and some of the others. And there were just a lot of small films I really cherished from that time that I never figured anybody would look at again. And yeah, this was one of them. I guess we should have done Slacker and Dazed and Confused, because when it comes to Richard Linklater, those are the ones I've seen, plus School of Rock, which I really enjoy. I haven't seen these films, though. I, I'm the newbie here, but I've heard about them. I already, around the time you really started getting excited for Before Midnight, I guess my dad had seen these, and he loves these films. He never told me, but he's like, oh, have you have you seen Before Midnight? Have you seen these other ones? They just sit around and talk, but they're amazing. So <laughs> these are films I've heard about because of that third part of the trilogy. They'd never come up on my radar before then, though. So I'm, I'm excited to watch these. I don't think these films get any love because... I didn't own these. I haven't gone back and rewatched these very much. I've seen Before Sunrise quite a few times in the 90s, but I've seen Before Midnight once. I've seen Before Sunset once. And when we decided to review these, I'm like, oh, well, I'm the fan here. Time to brush up on the bonus materials. I went out looking for a Blu-ray. <laughs> There's no Blu-ray. Wow. There is just a shat out DVD with no bonus features. 
it's not even high def. The picture is ugly and grainy. I ended up getting it on iTunes because that's the only way to get a high def version. This movie is not given very good treatment. It's a cult following. I, I do feel like people love it, but you're right. Maybe the people that love it aren't the kind that buy Blu-rays. I have seen Before Sunrise many times. I have only seen the sequels once, but that's just because the older I get, the less often I get to see a movie twice. And of course, it should be said, we're kind of building up to Valentine's Day. We've talked about the love story. This really is a love story. We've never done this before. It's curious to know. I don't think of any of us as necessarily romantic guys. Why isn't Marjorie on this? (laughs) I actually am a romantic guy. Marjorie should be here to testify to that. When I was courting her, I was quite the Don Juan with roses. I surprised her on Valentine's Day by taking her to a restaurant at the top of the tallest building in Springfield, which is a hotel, getting a room, filling it with candles, roses, champagne. I'm a romantic guy. I just don't show that side. That's because you watched all the rom-coms. You know what to do. Exactly. (laughs) I had 10 years of study by the time I started dating her. I'm not much of a romance movie guy, though. I prefer a bit more comedy, but yeah, I definitely have that side of myself. Maybe it's because of these movies. Yeah, I do think that if you're going to appreciate that, you need to be ready to meet the movie without comedy. The surprise may be that Americans are accustomed to the romance being layered with dick jokes and slapstick pratfalls, misunderstandings. This movie is earnest, and it's earnest from people that are cynics and educated. And I think all of that may be barriers for certain audiences, that these are people that are comfortable about quoting Dylan Thomas and Surratt paintings and what have you. They're educated, they're traveled. I guess it's not going to be everyone's story of their own romance here. It's a very particular time and place. But I can say this much. It catches me at just the right moment. I am more or less the same age as these characters. I went to Vienna maybe a year after this movie came out, not because of it, just by accident, really. Oh, you were hoping to meet a Celine, weren't you? (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) But I was uh, traveling with Peace Corps people and refused to go to uh, some shithole. So I ended up going to Vienna by myself. (laughs) It's actually the truth. I agree. This movie, it came out in 1995. It is such a time capsule of that period. And yeah, I'm just a couple years younger than Ethan Hawke. He was born in 70. I was born in 74. This is a Gen X movie. You talk about these intellectual people having these discussions. I was a college junior when I saw this. Communications major. And I studied film. So yeah, we paid money to talk about this kind of crap. Yeah, now people pay money to listen to us talk about this kind of crap. (laughs) Thank God it had some kind of payout. (laughs) I will say, you know, I was watching this with my girlfriend and she didn't know anything about it. She's like, what year was this film? I'm like, 95? She's like, I was going to say, they got the dress, everything perfect if this was the 90s. I'm like, well, yeah, because it was. But yeah, it takes me back. It looks like 95. Ethan Hawke's kind of grunge. It just got that look, the hair. Yeah, it's very much of its time. I couldn't remember the last time I'd heard a man referred to as fine, as in sexy. I was just, that's like one of those slang terms that died with a whimper. (laughs) I'm not even sure it was used back then. She's French. So, you know, I know that Julie Delpy's character gets irritated at being reduced in that way, but she is also very French in this movie. So I I think that might have been a European phrase more than an American one. Oh, no, I, I definitely heard it in pop songs. Yeah. Fine? Girl, you fine. 
So we should get into this, but I mean, does a plot summary seem necessary here? Should we do the formality? Is there a plot to give? Oh, sure. Why not? We have a pattern here. Why deviate from it that much? We're already throwing people into uncharted territories by reviewing romance trilogy. <laughs> Let's provide some continuity. Here's the plot. It's the summer of 1994. Jesse's an American student who went to Madrid to meet his girlfriend, but they quickly break up. Feeling down, he rides a train around Europe, taking a roundabout way to Vienna for his flight home. En route to Vienna, Jesse meets Celine on a train. Celine is a French college student headed back to Paris after visiting her grandmother in Budapest. The two have a conversation and hit it off, and both are sad when the train reaches Vienna and Jesse has to leave. So Jesse asks Celine to get off with him, and they would spend more time together in Vienna, and she can catch a train the next morning. She agrees, and the two go around Vienna with no real agenda, having conversations and growing closer. Yet they realize the long-distance thing never works, so they agree not to exchange any contact information. This will be the one and only night they ever have together. As the night draws to a close, they make love in the grass and return to the train station the next morning to catch their respective rides. At the last minute, Jesse asks Celine to see him again. They agree to meet six months later at that very train track. They then look wistful as they go their separate ways, and credits roll. Now, it will probably surprise no one to know that this movie, this fictional whisper of a story, came from a page in Richard Linkletter's real life. That five years before he filmed this, he had a very similar occurrence with a real-life woman in Philadelphia, in a toy store of all places, back in 1989. He was 29, she was 20, they spent all night talking together. The difference is, they did swap numbers and try to keep it alive. He went back to Austin, she was in Philadelphia, and it fizzled out. So he wanted to fix that with this movie. The whole crux of this movie, what I think is so beautiful and makes it so alive, is that these are people that are committing to it all being existential. It's all about this night. We are smart enough to know that this will not continue on, that there's no way we can carry on the way we're feeling into our lives beyond this moment. And so it's a snapshot in time. It's a filmmaker's artistic idea of what he wishes that night could be. Sadly enough, the woman that he made it and was inspired for never lived to see it. She died in a motorcycle accident while they were filming this. Yeah, I read that story and it was really sad because he was hoping this movie might reunite them and he just kept wondering why he never heard from her and why he never heard from her. And then finally, right around the time before Midnight came out, Somebody saw him mention her in an interview and got in touch with him, so... He never used her name before until the press materials for the third movie, and, and that was the difference. But obviously, it would have worked, buddy. I don't know this woman, but I'm sure she would have come out. It, this is a beautiful movie, and it definitely would have worked. He knew that he needed to collaborate with a female in order to make this story go off. He knew that he was... Okay, he's Jesse. That's very obvious. If you saw the movie Slacker, Richard Linkletter... He's the first character you see in Slacker. He's on a bus, and he has all these ideas, like Ethan Hawke has all of these ideas. It's very clear to me that Jesse is our writer-director here. He wanted to have a companion write this screenplay with him. There was an actress, Kim Krizan, who he had worked with on Dazed and Confused and Slacker. She co-wrote this screenplay, and I do feel like she contributes a lot along with the actors themselves, to the different voices of Jesse and Celine. Yeah, I read that Delpy was actually went on the record after this came out and said that she and Ethan Hawke were kind of pissed they didn't also get screenwriting credit. I think this was 
very collaborative. But I think Kim and Linkletter got the script together, but then Hawk and Delphi put a lot of themselves in it from everything I've read. And that's really unusual. You know, you look at how you were talking about Boyhood and the way that was filmed over such a long period and the way this is a trilogy that spans three separate decades. And it's just such an unusual thought process that a director would have a story in mind, but then allow the people to come in and help completely rewrite it. And honestly, that to a degree, the dialogue is so inconsequential, they could say anything, right? This isn't a story about what they do, and it isn't so much a story about what they say. They could have any conversation or use any words, and as long as the emotion behind them is right, it's going to work. It's how you know so many romances are contrived, that so many things... We expect characters to fall in love because plots happen to them and that pushes them together. Here, it's going to be all about chemistry. Yeah, that is something I noticed with their dialogue. Like, I'm sitting here watching this, writing down, like, every philosophical thought they had, looking for the theme, like, this is all going to tie together. Because, like you said, Stuart, that's what you'd expect in a typical romance. Like, it's all going to build. And I remember, like, back in my college days, I'd meet a girl, and yeah, I'd do these conversations all night. I, I don't know if they were ever this intellectual, but I remember, you know, it captured that feeling. You'd like to think they were, right? <laughs> Well, when we get into this, uh, I'll say if I would like that or not. But it captured that feeling of like meeting someone and just that excitement where you feel you could talk forever. Yeah, the conversation probably really doesn't matter. It's more about the spark that caused it. There's two themes that seem consistent in a lot of Richard Linkletter's work, and that is time and the effect it has on people and conversation. Like, he values this. And it comes through in in the dialogue. I mean, eventually these characters come to compare God to communication itself, to the space between two individuals. And it's a spiritual thing for him. You get that in this movie. It's really a testament. If you're going to like this movie, if you're going to pray in this church, it's going to be because you like to spend time with Jesse and Celine. And like I said, they're not your typical romance characters. Let's take a look at them. They're a bit pricklier than I think normally in American romances. They're tailored to look like us but a more likable version of us, right? They're cuter, they're smarter, they're funnier. They always have some quirky job. Yeah, I (laughs) I relate a lot to Ethan Hawke. I did travel around Europe on my own. I I am the same age, but there's also a poser mentality to him. I mean, at this point, he was not an author yet. He was not an established stage actor yet. He was Basically, yeah, the kid from Dead Poets Society and Explorers, who had done a couple Gen X movies here, I feel like he's got a real chip on his shoulder when we see him here on the train. We don't find out until late in the movie that he's had a breakup, but I could guess it instantly with the way that he clues us in to how jaded he is about love. I don't get that right away. I mean, when they're still on this original train, I think that These two are having their meet cute. There's a German couple having an argument. Celine has to change train seats, and he asks her if she can understand what they're saying. I mean, I don't get a chip on his shoulder and the cynicism until after they leave the train. Right here, I think he's trying to pick her up, and she's game. I mean, he asks her about the argument. She says she doesn't know. He kind of backs off and takes that as nothing, but then she keeps up the conversation. I think this is really the least cynical we'll see Jesse the whole time. I mean, later on in the movie, she'll say she fell in love with him because 
of this early story he tells about being a young boy playing with a hose and thinking he sees his grandmother's ghost in it. I don't see cynicism. But before that, he says that couples, as they grow older, lose the ability to hear each other. That's nature's way of having these people live together without killing each other. That's, I think, cynical. What brings them together, the meet cute you refer to, is a couple fighting. We don't know what they're saying unless you speak German. You guys don't speak German? (laughs) I don't, but yes. What brings them together is fighting and them laughing about the fact that as you get older, if you're going to survive as a couple, you're going to have to stop listening to one another. That women lose the low frequencies in their hearing, men lose the higher end, and thus they won't be able to hear each other's voices. That to me, yeah, I get some jadedness. It comes up in various moments of dialogue. You know, he kind of shrugs off love and this and that. It's only later, you know, both of these people are very guarded and cynical. It's only later, occasionally, that they'll drop their guard and show a little bit more romantic passion. But they're not quick to it. Yeah, I mean, even late in the film, they're talking about, you know, feminism. And is it, you know, are women created to destroy men? Like, they they have all (laughs) these different talks that, which they're interesting. But yeah, I don't know if they ever get over some of their feelings about love or the other sex. That's very late into the film. Oh, yeah, there's definitely... And I think it comes out more as the movie goes on. Both of them have kind of some screwed up viewpoints of relationships. It might be good that they only have one night together. I mean, I I think one of them would eat the other one alive. We'll, We'll see some of that with the trilogy to see if I'm right or wrong. But from this one, yeah, especially her. She keeps talking about how various species of women just eat their lovers when they're done with them. And sometimes that's better. Yeah, she is more reserved. Nothing would have happened... If Jesse didn't act, he's the idea man. He's always got an idea. He always is pitching like, I had this idea about this TV show. I had this idea about getting off the train. He's the one with the imagination. She probably has these ideas. She doesn't vocalize them. The most extroverted she gets is by choosing to sit across from him. But she's making him do all of the work. Yeah, I feel like Celine, she... She has this chip on her shoulder. They're talking about what they don't like. And she's like, I don't like when people say, oh, that's so French. But she feels very French. Maybe that's an American (laughs) stereotype. And Ethan Hawke's character feels very American. He's, you know, jumping all over the place. The idea is, Celine, here, let's go to this graveyard. I can tell you about this dead 13-year-old girl. That is very French, Celine. If you don't want to be stereotypical (laughs) French, don't talk about dead girls. They are stereotypes, but they'd hate to admit it. They'd like to think they're smarter than how they would categorize each other, but they're not. Yeah, and Julie Delpy. I mean, we talked about Ethan Hawke. Julie Delpy, I actually knew that actress coming into this from Killing Zoe. Sure. And then right after this movie, I'd see her when I went to theaters for An American Werewolf in Paris. (laughs) Less notable. (laughs) Wow. But more likely for us to review. (laughs) Yeah, probably one day. Before we do the Three Colors movies, what she was famous for at this point was there had been a trilogy of interlocking European movies based on the colors of the French flag, blue, white, and red. And red was a terrific film. She was in the crappy one, actually. She was in the (laughs) Polish comedy White. But it was a big art house hit back in the 90s, and uh, she was the babe that was available, I guess. Juliette Binoche was not available to do this movie, I guess. Yeah, she had been familiar to art house audiences. This is an art house crowd kind of movie. I think that that's what they're going for. This movie feels much more European than it does American. Yeah, it's filmed overseas. It feels like a foreign film spoken in English to me, honestly. I think that's an excellent way of thinking about it. And again, we'll startle people with an over-familiarity with 
American romance films. It just doesn't use that language. No, which is why when I saw this for the first time in 95, I was a little bit dumbstruck by what I was seeing. I mean, I'd been watching a lot of films for my film classes and my communications major. So I deviated from American cinema quite a bit. And I think that's why I was able to roll with this a little bit more. And I was also watching various types of more independent films. But if all I had come into this with is a steady diet of like, forget Paris, French kiss, and that (laughs) IQ one with Meg Ryan, I'd have been pretty lost pretty early. Yeah, I'll say this with the dialogue, like, it does feel foreign, like, and to me, that's not necessarily a good thing. Like, I, I'm thinking of, like, the French director, Jean-Luc Godard. Like, we're just going to have this Marxist speech in the middle of the film. And, 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 like, so much of this film, like, it captures moments that I remember in college. Like, just talking about whatever. But this couple, I don't know. How does the dialogue come up to you guys? Because to me, it just almost every scene, it starts a little too contrived to me. It's like, we walk into a church and, you know, my thoughts about God and blah, 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 like, Here's a perfect philosophy I have formed. I like a lot of the ideas and just watching them talk about things, but it almost feels like a Woody Allen film or Kevin Smith on the other spectrum. Like, here's this perfect pop cultural monologue I'm going to give you right now. Or Woody Allen, here's this perfect New York intellectual like line I'm going to throw out. There's something almost unnatural feeling about some of the dialogue to me, which bothered me. I would say this. Not everyone walks around with monologues, but these are, I think, internal people. Keep in mind, Jesse has been on this train for weeks inside of his head. She has been with her grandmother and probably has not been able to tell her grandmother personal things from her life. So you know how it is. If you ever spend a great deal of time alone, you do kind of create a monologue. You do start talk. I do start talking to imaginary people and, <laughs> and, and trying to understand yourself by talking to someone that might get it. And so walking around a city, all of that, it's going to give them the opportunity to say things that they've already formed. No, spontaneously, most people aren't going to be as eloquent as this, but I do feel like you're dealing with people that are both literate and educated and who have had some time to formulate these ideas. Jacob, I'm going to side with you a little bit here. Now, when I watched this movie and I was 20, 21 years old, I completely went with everything they said because I viewed them as almost an idealized version. I wanted to speak as intelligently as I felt they were speaking. I wanted to have these well-formed thoughts about God that I could just spew out when I went to a church. I thought at the time, it was such a great notion. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I thought I was doing when I was stoned in college, but I don't (laughs) think I was quite this clear. (laughs) But watching it now as a 40-year-old, 20 years later... I find them to be kind of pretentious douches, and especially Celine. My God, every single place they go, oh, I came here when I was a little girl. Oh, I was in this a church like this just a week ago. Every place they've gone, she has to be cooler than the spot they've been in because she's been there before. If I was Jesse, I'd be like, oh, shit. I got the whole night, huh? (laughs) She's taking him around, though, right? I think she is kind of steering where they're going because she's been there before. She's European. He's never been to Europe before. He's never been in Vienna. He's only in Vienna because he's flying out the next day. I'd like to point out, he launches the plan to hop off the train and do all of this, and she agrees, 
before they've even exchanged names. I do love that detail. I did find that funny. Yeah, I didn't realize they didn't know each other's name. And then like 30 minutes in the film, like, oh, by the way, what's your name? It's when they're exiting the train. And I was paying close attention because I remembered his name was Jesse. I couldn't remember her name when the movie started. And so I'm like trying to take my notes. What's her name? And I'm just writing her, she, until <laughs> finally when they're exiting the train. And it feels almost like an insert shot. Because they're like, I'm Jesse, I'm Celine. Let's get a locker so we don't carry bags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want to point out, even though this movie may feel foreign or are formless, it's following classic Hollywood structure. This is the 14-minute mark. This is where Act 1 becomes Act 2. Something has to happen to carry us to the new place. And, and this is happening right at that 14-minute mark. They're taking a gamble. They met cute, and now they're going to do something about it. And Act 2 is all about, really... Are they going to connect? Are they going to sleep together? Are they going to go see the show about the cow? That's what I want. I wanted to see that show. It sounded interesting. I did see that show, people, when I was in Vienna. That's a real thing? They are out there. Let me tell you. They are out there with their leaflets and whatever. I was traveling alone. Oh, you want me to go to this? Sure, I'll go to this. I wish it had a communist cow in it. It had some very <laughs> photogenic people in it, in leotards, but it was some nonsensical musical fairy tale with people leaping around in beanstalks. I couldn't tell you what I saw, but it was horrendous. And it was in English. I mean, that was no excuse. Like, I couldn't understand what was going on. It was obviously contrived for tourists. Terrible. Beware if you're traveling to Vienna. Community theater is no better than small town America. And you're talking about what they're doing that's like Hollywood. But here's the thing that really shocks me, though. Those cow people watching this the first time, I might have thought that they would become recurring funny characters. Like they would go to the cow show later on or something like that. But they really don't. There are no supporting characters in this film. That's true. There's a moment, I really like this moment, where they find a poet, and this poet, instead of just giving him money, he's like, give me a word, and I'll write you a poem, and if you like it, pay me for it. And they're like, milkshake. And I thought he wrote a very beautiful poem. I, I was moved by that. I, I thought it was great. And there's a moment there, it's a character moment, Ethan Hawke's just like, yeah, he just plugged the word milkshake into a poem he already wrote, and Celine's like, oh, it's very beautiful. But, you know, if this was typical Hollywood romance, that poem, he would have like said a line from it at the very end. Like, I finally see the beauty in that. No, it's just it's just this moment. You learn something about the characters and it moves on. It never comes back. That's exactly right. You're learning about them. This movie is micro focused on these two individuals and seeing if they're compatible for each other, seeing if you like them and, and seeing if they're going to learn from one another. How much alike are they? They both seem cynical to me. But yeah, there was a moment where Jesse comes across looking, well, she calls him a rooster prick, but he looks much more cynical because he came to the conclusion that I would have, which is that, oh, this guy already had the poem lying around, and he just waits for people to give him a word, and he plugs it right in. Now, I thought the movie told me I was right. If you watch the to the end credits, they actually credit the poet. It's a real poem. There's a real poet. I thought, aha, okay. Delusional angel. This is something that, yes, that this guy was just, just riffing off. But it was written for this movie. So it was a, a beat poet that was friends with Richard Linkletter. So who's to say? I mean, I guess you could see it either way. He could have invented it on the spot, or it could have been uh, this reused poem. Yeah, I did see it as him making it up. I mean, obviously he made it up for the film, but... You know, he looked like he was dumbfounded when he heard the word milkshake to me. Maybe he's just trying to think of a rhyme to fit with it. 
brings all the boys to the yard. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking when they said milkshake. If they were in the Bronx, you know, it when Khalees. But uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> And that's the second time, though, we see this, because the same kind of thing happens earlier with the palm reader. She's just going around, and, I mean, I've been to Europe. I hadn't been when I saw this the first time. I have now. There are a lot of gypsies roaming around there. Everywhere. And they're hated, by the way. They have to be so aggressive because they really are shunned people, and so that's the only way that they live. They live in the street. Yeah, the very first time I was in Paris, all the... Parisians were like warning me, don't put your bag on the ground. A, a gypsy will steal it. Yes. Really gypsy there. And there, you know, we get to see Jesse saying, I hope you don't believe that any more than a horoscope you read in the newspaper. I mean, he really does come across cynical, which I think is going to rub us more the wrong way now, now in 2015, than it would have in 1995, when we were all that cynical. Yeah, I see myself in him. I see myself, when you're young, you want to tear down the world. I mean, they talk about that. You know, you want to rebel against your parents. She has parents that love her and support, and she's still finding that she wants to rebel. She's reading a book about, like, incest. Books about incest. That's so French. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Stop it, Celine! <laughs> and he's reading about Klaus Kinski's sex affair. So, you know, you can see where their mind was. I do wonder if he had maybe met a couple other girls on the trains in the in the weeks between his plane travels. But my point is, it is common when you're that young to be much more cynical, I think, than I am now. They say you get more cynical as you get older. About some things, that's true. But when you're young and, and learning about the world, I think it's easy to take the stance that I reject it all. And uh, I recognize that. And you call it douchey. I just call it being young 25 educated think they know it all intellectual pseudo intellectual arnie you said when you saw this in your 20s you're like identified with all the dialogue and everything and i i didn't have that opportunity i again to bring up kevin smith kevin smith is awesome when you're 20 and like that dialogue is amazing and then you're 40 and you're like ah oh, it's kind of embarrassing and i am trying to put myself in that spot try to go back when i'm watching this what it feels like, because again, I, I remember those feelings of just finding someone new and just being able to talk and be open with them. And, and you might think you're being deep and you're just being a douchebag or, or cynical, but it does capture that feeling. It's one I have to think back on now, though, which is kind of depressing just to get a little French. Yeah, I mean, there are just such great moments in this film, though. I remember in 1995 watching this in my living room alone and it was summer break when I watched this brand new release on video. And I just had possibly my best year in my college career, just socially. My best year was that year. And there was one hippie chick that I would just like have these long, deep philosophical conversations with. And I just would have these kinds of douchey conversations for lack of a better term. I mean, I look back, I'm very embarrassed at the conversations we had. And when I'm watching this movie now, I'm seeing a lot of myself in Jesse. I'm really identifying with him. And in Celine, I'm seeing a lot of the kinds of girls I was hanging around with. I mean, I was a communications major taking a lot of liberal arts classes. You can imagine the kinds of students that attracts. So we were having all types of these conversations and might have been herbally enhanced. So I'm seeing this. I'm falling in love with Celine. And that scene in the record booth when they're doing the listening and that I thing, I'm in 1995 totally there with them and just like having the emotions Jesse is having at that time. Watching it this time, 
I guess I've become more cynical. I'm the opposite of you, Stuart. I'm just more jaded. I'm like, oh, kids. No, I definitely want them to connect. I'm definitely, I'm never not liking them. Sometimes I'm, I'm waving them off and thinking, oh, you're just young or whatever. You know, they're death obsessed. I do remember that being a big part of my 20-something, you know, wrestling with death, that, the finite of things, going to the graveyard, all of that. It's funnier, as I get older, the more comforting it is to know that this will all go away one day. That's terrible. <laughs> I guess it is, but truly. I live every day more and more like Celine. Like, what she said that impacted me the most this watching is how she lives in fear of the few seconds where she's conscious she's about to die. I'm like, yes, every year more, yes. <laughs> I remember feeling that way. I remember obsessing about those things. I mean, I went to art school and people made films about it and you wrote about it and you wrote your suicide story or the death story where your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever died and, you know, you have endless montages of people walking around beaches. I remember all those things, but as I get older, it doesn't impact me in that way. I'm not obsessed with it the way that she is. So I do attribute that as something from youth that is bringing them together. And I think, you know, she mentions later, one of the things she really loves about him is that he has this story about his dead grandmother appearing to him in a vision of a hose. And I think that, yes, that would be a comfort for a character who is totally obsessed with death. Someone that believes that there's something more, that there's ambiguity in death. And so, yeah, I'm ready for them to kiss. I'm wondering when it's going to take. I think it is going to be the record booth, but they save it for the Prodder, which I got to say, the Prodder is not as cute as they make it look in this movie. I have been there and it is dirty. Their haunted house, it's Studio 54. <laughs> I kid you not. Like the disco is like the frightening place you don't want to go in, which it probably was actually pretty accurate. But they have these like C-3PO, R2-D2 giant robots and it's corny as all hell, but you got to do it if you're ever in Vienna. It's it's a real old-fashioned carnival kind of environment, but not romantic, at least not by my estimations. Pretty dirty. Those cars are not sanitary. Yeah, well, the great thing about that record scene where you do think they're going to kiss is I love how long Linkletter just lets the camera stay on them and you, you get those looks on their face. I mean, that's something you can't write. That is all acting there. There is a scene earlier where they're on a train and they're just playing this question game. It's all one take. There's some phenomenal acting and the looks they're giving and, and, and just being able to sustain this. That is something I applauded with this film. And eventually we learn why they got there. I mean, it breaks down, but through kissing, I think they kiss a couple times before he's really willing to admit that, yes, I had a girlfriend in Spain and I had one of my crazy ideas to go out and visit her and found out she didn't want me there and I've just been traveling around on the trains. And, you know, meanwhile, she has broken up six months ago and, and was obsessed with him because he was a bad lover and stupid and all of that, that she gets obsessed over the wrong kinds of men. Yeah, that was a really telling scene. It's funny that that comes so late in the movie. And I remembered at least Jesse's side of the story, that he had just gotten broken up coming back into this. I forgot Celine's story of the breakup six months ago. And hers is the weirder one that like she was dating some guy who was stupid and bad in bed and really mean and he breaks up with her and so she becomes obsessed. It's like <laughs> there's more to this story than you're letting on, Celine. There's something you're not telling us. I don't know. I, I think I get her point. I do think it's if you think you're better than someone in a relationship, if they break up with you, it, that hurts more, right? How dare you? I could see getting all twisted around and not really wanting the person, but wanting them to want you. She's weird, but I don't know. I get Celine in this. 
She makes sense to me. As for his breakup, yeah, that's got to kind of suck to go all the way to Madrid and get dumped like that. But I like what he says, that he had just wanted to kind of fade away and be invisible for a while. He wasn't as cool with the breakup. That's why he was on the train. This whole thing about taking this cheap flight out of Vienna, it wasn't that much cheaper, but it gave him the opportunity to just kind of sit there and not have to interact with anyone. You said you wondered if he'd encountered any other women while on the trip. I think no. I think that would totally cheapen what he's saying here if that was the case. I think he might have hooked up. I mean, you know, I I don't think that there's been anyone to impress him in this way, but I can imagine him going with a girl or two. That wouldn't shock me. I don't think it cheapens what he has with Celine. They both recognize that what they have is rare. Yeah, there's this whole time he'll ask her a question about sex and she'll answer it and then she'll ask a question about love and he totally avoids it. He'll turn it into sex. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he banged a couple of French whores or something before Celine. But the change here is that it becomes about love, that he finally opens up about that when he refuses most of the film to talk about anything that has to do with love. Well, the only reason I don't think he would have, it's not like I think he's puritanical, (laughs) but I think it's just because he did want to just be alone. She drew him out of that shell is how I read this. And maybe I'm over romanticizing it. No, I think you might be right because... You know, I I do feel like, to be honest, I don't think he got with French whores. I do feel like he brings up the sex thing as just a way to deflect. Like, that's what you expect as a guy. I'm going to talk about sex and, hey, let's bang, lady. But it's a way to deflect the conversation and avoid talking about love because it hurts him. He's hurt right now. It's what guys do, right? I mean, we're much more comfortable talking about sex numbers than we are about how someone made us feel. I mean, that's just how we're trained to relate to individual men. So, yeah, it's awkward for him to open up. But keep in mind, A, she's French, so probably more sexually comfortable. Because she is a French stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the second thing is, she agrees with him. When he asks her about sex, and she asks him about love, and he doesn't want to answer about love, he says, well, what would you have said if I asked you? And she goes, well, I would have lied. So she's on the same page as him. It's not a male-female thing. It's, again, a generational thing. They're both more comfortable with sex than love. Yes, it's easier to be, right? Because emotional commitment is much harder. For whatever reason, I found it, and most people I know have found it, much harder to be intimate than it is to be physical. But for the majority of the evening, I really just think the point is their connection. I mean, I mentioned the record booth scene. I just love their physical acting here. The way that I said the dialogue doesn't matter, these two actors are just really selling me that they are connecting. And after seeing so many films where I've complained on this podcast that the guy gets with the girl just because that girl is there and that's what movies do, to actually see this believable connection coming from them, to be honest, I'm surprised that over 30 years, if these two haven't hooked up in real life, because it just, it feels like They need to because I'm getting that so strongly from their characters. No doubt about it. This is really strong screen chemistry. I know they old Hollywood, they always tell you about, you know, Bogey and Bacall and what have you. I think Jesse and Selene are up there with any romance that I've ever seen in film. Certainly as it develops, it's going to deepen and change. But just looking at this film alone, if there were no sequels, I do feel like, yeah, what they have here. I'm not saying this is a love for all ages, but what they have in this moment It's got heat and intensity that is undeniable. I mean, this movie undeniably captures that liquid quality of of when you first meet someone and fall in love. 
But are they cowards? Are they too smart? I mean, I feel like what's really romantic is when you go through shit together and you make it work. And I feel like they're taking the easy way out until the very end. They decide to re-meet, but they're like, okay, we're never going to talk again. We're just going to have this one perfect moment. And I feel like that cheapens it. You can have perfect moments, but for romance, it feels like it needs to be more than a moment to me. Oh, no. Keep in mind, this is what happened to Linkletter, and he didn't listen to that instinct and regretted it. <laughs> that woman in the toy store, it ended up, you know, going nowhere, and he and it changed his feelings about it. So this is Linkletter trying to rework a real memory into, you know, something that will always remain magical. You know, they talk about their time being magic and turning into pumpkins and glass slippers and all. They recognize this is a fairy tale. They're practical people enough to realize that once he's back in America and she's back in France, they're not going to feel this way when they make that long-distance phone call. I get it. I get it as well. I really like that they take that kind of attitude with it. By the same token, I think it just adds some import. Neither one of them means it, though. It's the funny thing. It's almost like a game of chicken because they decide to do it because they know it won't work, but it's... a question of what are they more afraid of? Are they more afraid of keeping in touch and losing the magic of this night? Or are they more afraid of losing each other? And that's kind of a push and pull that remains under the surface. It's brought up a couple of times, but it goes back to what Jesse said when he convinced Celine to get off the train is, and I love this little conversation, especially because we're reviewing three of these movies where he says, imagine yourself in 20 years and you're married to some guy and you're bored and you wonder, you know, you think back on all the guys and what if and things. I think by saying we'll never contact each other again, he's actually just planting that seed of doubt that for the rest of Celine's life, if she's ever unhappy in a relationship, she might be like, oh, what if I just given Jesse my number? There is an element of I'm just going to get laid here. I mean, the movie does it gently and beautifully and, and romantically, but an underlining core undeniably about all of this is it won't feel real unless they sleep together, right? I mean, it is all building. We would not be satisfied with one more kiss. It has to be consummation. And we really feel like we're going to get there when they all chunk it aside and go, okay, one night, let's go steal a bottle of wine. Let's go to the park. Uh, let's do this. You know, did they have to have sex? And I'll say why I thought about this. I was trying to research this movie. There were no bonus features. I came across this Salon article written by somebody about our age. It was female who saw this movie and then immediately rushed off to Europe to try to have this experience. Mm, how'd it go? Probably not so great. It took her a few tries. It was a she, so it that helps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she finally found some guy over there. And it was way too postmodern for her. At one point, he said, we're having such a before sunrise moment. And she goes, what's that? When she planned the whole fucking thing. But finally, she goes, and for some reason... The sex didn't end with just 70 seconds of, like, flailing on the ground. It's like, you know, when you look at certain real sex and ground and things, it's like, <laughs> does it really need to be there? Does it, Or does it perhaps ruin it a little? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sex under a tree at night with all the dew and the cold may not be as romantic as it looks. Do they have sex? It should be said they're a little coy about this. It's clear that, you know, they're talking, they're drinking. They're certainly thinking about it. She gives every indication when she gets on top of them. They cut away. We don't know definitively how far it goes, right? 
It may not have gone to, to use a baseball metaphor, home run status. Oh, it, it had to have, right? I mean, does anybody have any doubt of that? No, not really. They do clarify it in future movies, but I never thought they didn't when she climbs on top of him. You know what? It's the way they are with each other afterwards. There's a wall that has come down as they're walking around that was not there before. That's how I know, is seeing them in the morning. Yeah, the little twirl and the when they're in that aisle there. And the mental photograph. I love the yeah. mental photograph. I've actually done that before, back in the days before selfies and cell phones. You didn't always have a camera with you, and I've done the mental photo thing, and I thought that was just so romantic. That's how you know this is a Gen X movie and not a millennial movie, is that, yeah, there would not be any mental photograph about this would all be over Facebook with people <laughs> commenting on whether she should go all the way or not. <laughs> there would be a lot more input from all of your friends. There'd be no getting away from it all. Like, that sense is lost here, and, and I do love that about this movie, is it takes place just before that cell phone mania would take all of that privacy away. Yeah, they have this moment where they're in a diner or a cafe and they have this fake phone call, which is where they're able to kind of be truthful with each other. It's a weird kind of role-playing game that you might see in a marriage counselor's office. Talk to your spouse like you're talking to your best friend. But they do that these days, yeah, they'd actually just Skype their best friend. But then the sun comes up on them and the night is over. I like it when Jesse has that line, we're back in real time. You know, it's like they were in their fantasy land. And when he says that, they're on their way to be separated. Yeah, they all of a sudden remember they forgot to see the play about the cow. Like, that seems significant <laughs> to me. It's like, we got to Vienna. Like, oh, what are we going to do here? We're going to go see this play about a cow. And then they do get so lost with each other that becomes totally unimportant because a communist cow would be important to me. <laughs> <laughs> you would rather have had that date with the cow than with the girl. I, you know what? Always leave something undone. That's my advice to anyone that travels. Gives you a reason to go back to a city. So they can always go back. <laughs> the cow will always wait, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> There'll always be a play about a communist cow. And he wants to come back in six months. They change their mind. She's about to board the train. They're about to never see each other when they all of a sudden remember an affair to remember from 1957. Yeah, that's Gen X all over. We want to be cooler than our parents, but we're not. We're just as old-fashioned and romantic when we finally have that connection. Once we finally found someone that shares our cynicism and matches it and comforts us, yeah, we're ready for it to continue on. He says, if the choice were marry you now or never see you again, I would marry you. And that just goes to show. Is it a cop-out that they decide to meet there? Should they have exchanged phone numbers just in case? I mean, in an affair to remember, one of them does die on the way there, so... I don't know, it's like the mental snapshot. It, you're trusting the other person in a way by not writing details down and all of that. They do it in their spirit, and yeah, they have it all worked out. The question is... Are they going to meet there? Now, obviously, we have a sequel that's going to answer that question. I kind of hate that. On some level, I always love this movie as a standalone and never knowing. You know, I do feel like there's something wonderful about never knowing about the potential, but feeling the heat of it. But come on, can we speculate? Would they show up? What did you think before the sequel came out, Arnie? I thought they didn't. I really thought that this was about one night, one night together. And 
I really tried this time to read Ethan Hawke's face. Was he going to come back? He has the one to make the big trip. He even says that here. You know, he has to fly overseas. She just has a quick train ride. Yeah, if I didn't know there was a sequel, I'd say, no, they don't get together in six months. I don't know. There's so much talk about death in this. You know, Ethan Hawke, when he's talking about seeing the vision of his grandma and that learn death is ambiguous i don't know to me it just seemed like this is better if it's this fading image that we kind of remember that you don't really want to see that person after they die you don't really want to be confronted with the truth you just want to live in this fantasy world well i mean i don't want to put too much of a negative phrase on it but there is something about everything having its place. And I do feel like, I agree, I don't think that they would meet. I think that the idea would become less appealing as you got reimmersed back into your old life and something else would come up and money problems and you'd think about it, but it would just be that moment. I can think of several intense moments I've had with people for short periods of time, not romance, just thrown together in a job or whatever. And and I really liked that person and it was it was really like a special moment, you know, like going to summer camp or something like that. Yes, yes. I was just thinking about that. Like I went to a retreat. You know, I remember those great friends I had for two weeks or whatever, and I never saw them again, but they meant a lot to me. And you know what? I think we're going to kind of see that kind of stuff when we get to boyhood. But yeah, small moments can have big impacts for the rest of your life. And I think that's what this was, or at least that's what it could have been. Yeah, we're all seeing the same thing. Now, Linkletter did say that... He and the actors all thought the date would be kept. Hmm. They had no doubt in their mind they would be back together in six months. Well, that's the romantic ideal. You'd want it. I mean, that's what we want as an audience. God knows we don't want the train to pull these two apart. But it does. And what I love about this movie, of course, it's hard to watch them part, but it's life. It is what it is. And certainly as an adult, I accept that it's not a tragedy. Sad, perhaps, but not a tragedy. But I love the fact that this movie doesn't end just with that, but it returns to all the spaces that they had visited without them. And you have that moment where the old woman is passing by their empty bottle of wine in the park. And I just thought that that was a beautiful way of of reminding us how eternal this story is, how universal it is, and how even though these are picture postcard moments, without Jesse and Celine in it, it's just not the same picture. My view of this is influenced by having seen the two sequels, but when the movie starts on that train, there's the middle-aged couple fighting. There's the old couple who've probably both gone deaf in various hearing ranges and can't hear each other, but they're not talking at all, but they look content. And then you've got Jesse and Celine, the young couple. And I kind of see that mirrored here by that old lady walking at the end. And you say that these places are a little less joyous without those two characters there. By the same token, all of the shots we're seeing here, the sun is up. It's like the magic of that night is gone. There's certain things you think in the night that when the day comes up and have to face the daylight, you can't actually do. And I wonder if that's some of that, is that everything they'd had, if they'd had the time together differently, if they'd gotten off the train at like 5 a.m. and had a daylight time together, if it would have been as romantic. Or he could switch his flight. He didn't have to fly out that day. You know, he could spend (laughs) a couple more weeks. I mean... He was supposed to originally, right? Right, yeah. It seems to me like you could pay $100 more and fix this, right? But then again, $100 is a lot of money to a poor kid that's been traveling on a Eurail. He didn't even have enough money for a hotel for the night. Or the bottle of wine, but yet they ate and drank at a lot of cafes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they just skipped out on the check. Yeah, the real question is not are they going to meet again. Is he going to send that money back to that bar for taking his wine and glasses? 
I didn't even see him get an address from the guy. I mean, unless it was written on the bottle. <laughs> I thought that was one of those moments. It got a little too schmaltzy with the romance. Like the bartender's won over by this young love and he's just going to give it to him. He knows he's, he's not going to get paid back. Is it young love? If I was the bartender and this guy was coming to me and basically saying, I get to bang that if you give me wine, I'd give him wine. Yeah, well, the difference is, is it your bar or do you just work there? <laughs> Believe me, I'm much more giving when it's not my bottle of wine. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Before Sunrise? Jacob. Okay, this is my first time seeing it. I only watched it once. I got caught up on the dialogue. I'm going to be honest. It just seems like everything they say, they're just crapping out gold. And that kind of bothered me because the actual physical acting and the long shots and the long takes were so great. I, I just wish things were a little bit more natural. You know, early on, Jesse's like, I got this idea for this public access show where you just follow someone around for 24 hours and it's going to be pretty boring. I feel like Linkletter, that was a real idea of his. And then he's like, you know, that would be pretty boring. I, I'm going to spice up this dialogue a bit more. So I, I'm just going to say that out, out there. I did get caught up on that. And I also got caught up on, again, for me, the real romance, the reason I don't like rom-coms or fairy tales, you know, happily ever after, I feel the real romance comes after the happily ever after, after that rom-com ends, when you got to be together with each other and you got to make it work and you're that angry couple fighting and is it just that you tune each other out? That movie's coming, Jacob. Yes. I'm actually a little bit more forgiving of this film, I think, because I am going to be able to see how this plays out. To me, yes, this is a fairy tale. This is a romance. It's not a typical one. They go a different route. It is more intellectual. It is more internal, where these two characters that are so inside themselves are trying to come out and connect. And I think there is a good connection. There's a lot to like here. So yeah, I do recommend this film. Stuart. I can't think of a better Jenner X romance statement. I mean, I like Titanic, call me cheesy or whatever, but I rececognize that flaws as as a romance or a Romeo plus Juliet. I didn't even really like that movie. See, do you like all the Leo stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, he was the romantic foil for the 90s. I mean, what else do we got? I probably didn't see it, is the truth. But this is the one for me. It, it's a generational snapshot. It deals with people that I know and understand, and they really grapple with the pragmatics and the realities of how committed they can be to one another, and still choose to love each other in that one night. I think it's beautiful. I think it's fresh. You know, the dialogue is something that when you're younger, I think you're really going to be like, these people speak my language. And when you're older, you're going to say, oh, I used to speak that language. And I think it works both ways. You know, I view this movie differently than I did as a 25-year-old. But I love it no less. This is a great film and a high, high recommend. Obviously, I'm the fan of this series. I'm going to give this movie a recommend. But that said, this is my first time seeing it when we're not in the 90s. And I agree. This thing is a time capsule. I felt like I was going to a reunion. Part of the reason I got so excited for these sequels is because it felt like a reunion. I've never gone to a high school or college reunion. I didn't really want to see those people again. I've, thanks to Facebook, <laughs> I keep in touch with the ones I really want to. Yep. I don't need to go back and see them in mass. So that I couldn't keep up with Jesse and Celine on Facebook. Seeing the movies is how I reconnected with them. But I never pulled out that old yearbook. I never looked at the photos from the 90s. And my God, yeah. I mean, from the band they go to see, that guy just looks like he walked off a bad audition for Stone Temple Pilot Frontman replacements. Everything in here is so 90s. But, man, I just, I can't go home again. I said when I watched this in 95, I fell in love with Celine. And now I look at him and I, I have a different, more jaded, maybe hardened view. I 
find that I'm not as moved by this as a 40-year-old as I was as a 21-year-old. And more, I don't know that people who aren't of our generation will find much in here at all. Maybe if you're slightly older or young enough to remember the 90s, but for those who are now the age I was when I saw this, I don't know that they would connect on it in the same way because the characters are so 90s of characters. The same way I can't relate to a 50s romance because I can't imagine anybody would ever act that way. The cynicism, the conversations that put Jacob off, I could see those putting off other people. But to me, my entire adult life has been spent with these people in my memory and a strong recommend for one of my favorite movies. Just, it was great to watch it again, even if I did find myself kind of drifting of, to, of attention the more that they would go on about the paintings and the churches. <laughs> one of your favorite movies, huh? It is. I mean, I, for the people. Okay. Not the dialogue. I've, I've said this whole movie that the dialogue is completely unimportant compared to the chemistry between the people. And yeah, sometimes the movie would get bogged down in that dialogue. I will say this. I feel like of the three movies, I'm going to guess this is the one that's going to be the hardest for me to relate to. Or, or I should say, I'm going to find it much easier to relate to these characters as real life beats them down in the decades that follow. I'm really curious because my memory coming in is that this was my favorite. I mean, I just had such a strong reaction to this when I was 20. I remember a very different response to the middle part, and I've seen the third part recently. So I thought coming in, this would be my favorite, the most bright green arrow. I now wonder if that's true or not. I liked this movie a lot. I do think I may find myself more intrigued by the next two parts. The next one, I never thought it would happen. But Stuart, you have to remember this. I was so excited for that sequel to come out. And being an indie release, it didn't come to my town. I drove up to see it in Chicago with you and with Marjorie. A four-hour drive each way just to see before sunset. Well, we will talk about that next week. We will also talk about a Celine and Jesse reunion that happened before, before sunset. But uh, that should be savored at that time then. And in the meantime, don't forget to mark your calendars. February 17th, we return to the world of comic book movies live. We will be reviewing Kingsman, The Secret Service. Honestly, I know this is saying a lot. I may have my expectations too high. But this is the year of Fantastic Four, Ant-Man, and Avengers Age of Ultron. Okay, and you got me there. And because of Matthew Vaughn, Kingsman is the movie I am most excited for from comics. What? Over Avengers? No, I would say second most. I would say, no, I have highest hopes for this because Matthew Vaughn with X-Men First Class and with Kick-Ass, I think he's better than Joss Whedon. I am really looking forward to this. I actually don't think it'll be better than Avengers, but it could be. It could be. So we will be reviewing it live 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific at nowplayingpodcast.com. We're doing a live Q&A after. I really, really hope you'll come and join us. So we will be back next week with Before Sunset. Until then, have a great life. We've met before. Oh. Summer 94. We even fell in love. Really? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I vaguely remember someone sweet and romantic. It made me feel like I wasn't alone anymore. Someone who had respect for who I was. Mm -hmm. That's me. I'm that guy. 
I don't think so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You gonna see him again? We haven't talked about that yet. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Richard Linklater before film. For the greatest night in your life. <laughs> Thank you very much. And also join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, February 17th for our live review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. I feel like this is uh, some dream world we're in, you know? Yeah, it's so weird. It's like our time together is just ours. It's our own creation. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including The Aviator, Gangs of New York, The Social Network, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Catwoman, and more. Well, I like I like stories with a meaning behind it, like a really beautiful love story. Oh, sure, yeah. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I mean, most people, myself included, just sit around and bitch. <laughs> now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Everything that's interesting costs a little bit of money. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you like it, I mean, if you feel it adds something to your life in any way, then you can pay me whatever you feel like. Now Playing's B4 series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I'm giving you my whole life, okay? I got nothing larger to give. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Uh, Sprechen Sie English? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, could you speak German for a change? Now Playing is not affiliated with Castle Rock Entertainment, Columbia Pictures, Warner Independent Pictures, or Sony Pictures Classics. The before films are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Okay, well, you're very, very smart. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. We all see the world through our own tiny keyhole, right? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Let me sing you a waltz Out of nowhere, out of my blues Let me sing you a waltz About this lovely one-night stand Baby, you are gonna miss that plane Oh no, I, I definitely heard it in pop songs. Yeah. Fine? Girl, you fine. Like in the seventies. No, no. It was in the nineties. To me, I, I'm I'm thinking leisure suit. <laughs> Go watch In Living Color. They'll say quite a bit in their skits. <laughs>
Today we're discussing Before Sunrise, starring Ethan Hawke, Julie Delphi, directed by Richard Linkletter. <laughs> You're done! <laughs> <laughs> starring oh you said that yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's it wow it was so quick i totally missed it <laughs> the older i get the less often i get to see a movie twice i envy that i see almost every now playing movie twice <laughs> <laughs> and you buy them all even the horrible ones especially the horrible ones. you own both ghost riders don't you i own every marvel movie that's different <laughs> For whatever reason, I found it, and most people I know have found it, much harder to be intimate than it is to be physical. As we all have a just dead silent pause, Stuart killed it, because <laughs> how do you respond to that? <laughs> well, we, you move on. Pick another topic. Yeah. I mean, you could tell a story. I know a couple of stories. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like on the verge. I'm like... <laughs> By the way, when they had that scene where they imagine calling each other's friends back, I'm that friend that Arnie would be calling if this were happening to Arnie. And let me tell you, I got great stories for the highest donor. <laughs> oh, shit, you mean I have to outbid them to keep the stories in the vault? <laughs> I'm just saying, don't ever think I don't have one on you. I'm glad I don't have a childhood friend on this podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're great. I'm telling you, just full of drama. <laughs> Do you remember the chocolate-covered strawberries? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yes, I think, yeah, yes. I'll leave it there. Yes, I remember it all. Ooh, okay, I just, just check it. <laughs> Did you ever talk to her again, ever? No, never again. <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe this podcast will bring her back to you. Maybe I need some Sanka coffee. <laughs> I don't know if the viewers are enjoying this, but I'm loving this podcast. <laughs> I drove up to see it in Chicago with you and with Marjorie, a four-hour drive each way just to see before sunset. I don't remember that, but it sounds like something you do. Actually, I don't think you were there. I actually don't think you came that. No, you were there. You were there. I didn't see it with you. No, but we saw you after. Okay. Uh, this is, wow, no memory. This is no chocolate-covered strawberry. <laughs> it isn't. I remember going to that beer fest. With, no, it was like a clam bake with no clams. It was, it was an oyster fest with no oysters. There it was. Yeah, and that band that was... And we watched Cake, and you made me leave. You and Marjorie both. Yeah, we saw Donnie Darko. No, this was a, this was a different trip. This oh. was an early summer trip, I believe. No. Okay. Uh, the Oyster Fest with no oysters was on my 30th birthday. Okay. God, that sucked. It was my birthday concert, and you guys both were so having no fun that we left. <laughs> no, we stayed through Cake. No, you guys made me leave before he played a single song I knew. Cake is not one of the bands that can get away with playing all the other stuff on their <laughs> album. You gotta play the hits. <laughs> At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we're doing a live Q&A after. I really, really hope you'll come and join us. I guess we got to be there too, huh? Yeah. <laughs>
or you're going to look pretty damn stupid. <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> oh, Jacob couldn't come. Sorry. That's going to be the day our internet doesn't work. <laughs> Fuck it. Marjorie's seeing the movie with me. I'll get Marjorie and Jerry on the line. Let's just... <laughs> Call in the A team if the B team can't make it. 